I know not how it was, but with the first glimpse of the building a sense of insufferable gloom pervaded my spirit. I say insufferable, for the feeling was unrelieved by any of that half-pleasurable because poetic sentiment with which the mind usually receives even the sternest natural images of the desolate or the terrible. I looked upon the scene before me, upon the mere house and the simple landscape features of the domain, upon the bleak walls, upon the vacant eye-like windows, upon a few rank sedges and upon a few white trunks of decayed trees, with an utter depression of soul which I can compare to no earthly sensation more properly than to the after-dream of the reveller upon opium, the bitter lapse into everyday life, the hideous dropping off of the veil. There was an iciness, a sinking, a sickening of the heart, an unredeemed dreariness of thought which no goading of the imagination could torture into aught of the sublime. What was it, I paused to think, what was it that so unnerved me in the contemplation of the house? It was a mystery all insoluble, nor could I grapple with the shadowy fancies that crowded upon me as I pondered. I was forced to fall back upon the unsatisfactory conclusion that, while beyond doubt there are combinations of very simple natural objects that have the power of thus affecting us, still the analysis of this power lies among considerations beyond our depth. It was possible, I reflected, that a mere different arrangement of the particulars of the scene, of the details of the picture, would be sufficient to modify or perhaps to annihilate its capacity for sorrowful impression, and, acting upon this idea, I reined my horse to the precipitous brink of a black and lurid tarn that lay in unruffled luster by the dwelling, and gazed down, but with a shudder even more thrilling than before, upon the remodelled and inverted images of the grey sedge, and the ghastly tree-stems, and the vacant and eye-like windows. Welcome to Stage Blether, a weekly podcast offering reviews and analysis of contemporary theatre in Scotland. My name is Sam Haddo, and this is episode three, Haunted Houses. Pencil on paper and ink in your throat Why should the world give a damn what you wrote? You're one more broke poet who will never go far With a tuneless piano and a painted guitar A haunted house is a concept with which most of us are familiar because it comes up so often in stories. The house or the home, the domestic space of support, of nurture, of security, of defence, is invaded by a hostile and intangible presence. The presence that comes from a place so utterly bizarre and so foreign, you know, the afterworld, that it cannot be plotted on any map or conceptualised by any logic. It transforms the familiar environment and makes it a strange and uh, mon- it makes, the, uh, makes the, the mundane, makes the everyday strange, until the house itself becomes our enemy. We think of haunted houses separately from the ghosts that are said to inhabit them, because ghosts can come and go, but the house always stays there, and something of its ghostly infestation marks it permanently, preventing it from ever returning to the uncorrupted sanctuary of home. Once a house has been haunted, it will always be a haunted house. I should say that this is not a show about ghosts. I will I, well, hopefully do a show about ghosts at some point in the future, but I need more time to plan that show. For this show, I want to focus on the building itself, and particularly the ways in which theatre in a uh, thematic and in a practical sense, is preoccupied with, and in some ways cannot exist without, the idea of the haunted house. So, as the previous shows have done, what I'm going to do is talk for about 15 minutes about the topic of the week, and then I'm going to go on to review the week's shows, which in this case are parts two and three of This Restless House, Sidney Harris's new cycle of plays based on Ace Goyce's Oresteia, which uh, I think closes its run at the Citizens Theatre in Glasgow this weekend. When I do the reviews, there will be spoilers. I will try to flag them up, um, but I've, the way that I want to talk about the shows, I really can't not talk about the ending. Um, 
I'm also going to talk about uh, a little bit about a book called The Haunted Stage Theatre's Memory Machine, which was a book published in 2001 by the American scholar Marvin Carlson. So the quote that I read at the beginning is uh, from The Fall of the House of Usher, which is a short story by Edgar Allan Poe. I chose this partly because it was Poe was one of my first literary obsessions, like many maladjusted young people, um, but also for two, I think, more important reasons. The first one is that in this quote, the narrator suggests that spaces and the organisation of spaces can operate on our minds in ways that we are incapable of comprehending, that we can be affected, that a space because of the way that it is presented to us, can produce an emotion or a feeling or a sense within us that we cannot necessarily comprehend and certainly cannot control. Um, and the second reason I chose that quote is because uh, Stephen Burkhoff, who is a playwright or theatre maker, he does he performs in his own stuff as well, um, he wrote an adaptation of uh, the short story in which the house becomes a character. And, um, in fact, it becomes the narrator. I saw the, a production of this, a student production of this, when I was about 19, and it was the first time I'd ever thought about a building or a, a space becoming a character. Um, and I think that that's something I want to... Certainly, I want to talk about in relation to Zinni's play, so it seems like Poe is a good way into that. Now, to start off with, um, I'm still kind of not sure exactly how I'm pitching this podcast. I, I, sort of, I get the feeling that what I'm pitching it towards is people who are uh, interested and um, interested in theatre hopefully interested in theatre, or if not, it's my job to make you interested in theatre, but also, you know, articulate people who are not necessarily drama academics, and so at some point I might end up uh, explaining things in a way that I, I don't know, have time myself in knots. I will try to make sure that a non-specialist audience can understand what I'm saying. That's what I'm trying to say. Now, um, I need to talk about the politics of space, and this is something that people, particularly in the latter part of the 20th century academics, started writing about a lot. The politics of space. Michel Foucault and uh, Henri Lefebvre and Michel de Sorto and various other people wrote about the things called the politics of space. Now, this idea, the politics of space, it can be understood in many different ways. In one way, uh, we it's, it's something that we absorb as children without even thinking about it. So you know that thing about some kids can sit on the school bus, but others can't. Some kids can go to that part of the playground, but others can't. So the division of space according to power, is one way in which we think about space and politics. Um, spaces can be inhabited by some people, but not others. That makes a space political. Another way of thinking about the politics of space is to think that some spaces are designed to make you feel or act in a particular way. Cathedrals and churches are a really good example of this. They are designed to inspire awe and humility. Uh, supermarkets, in a different way, are designed, and shopping centres, and, you know, those kind of strange, lifeless oxygenless places that people go to buy things. Um, they're designed to encourage consumption, so of course you always go in and you know the, the, a place will be designed to try to encourage you to buy stuff. I think the best example of this I've seen is the Trocadero in London, which is this kind of huge multi-story palace of bowling alleys and cinemas and arcades, and you get an escalator um, from the front door right to the top of the building. But then if you want to get back down again, you can't get an escalator down. You have to go through all lots of little escalators inside the building, um, which take you to the, the next floor down, and you've got to find the next escalator. And the whole point is that you've got to then walk past all of these wonderful opportunities for you to spend money, and hopefully spend money. Um, so uh, that's a way of thinking about um, the... Uh, the way in which space can be political. It can be designed to make you act in a particular way. Uh, familiarity and welcome are also uh, part of the politics of space. You treat your own house or your best friend's house in a different way than you would treat the house of a stranger because you are not familiar with the space. Once a space has become familiar to you, then you are comfortable within it. You feel comfortable relaxing within it. Whereas if you don't know it, then you presumably don't feel comfortable. Um, memory is also a way of thinking about politics of space. A place can, uh, a space, so space and place, just sorry, quickly on those terms. Space is a, a word that generally refers to a type of 
space. So a, a supermarket or a church or a road, but place is a particular. Uh, so instead of saying a supermarket, I could say the 24-hour Tesco's in Lewisham. Um, instead of saying a church, I could say St. Paul's Cathedral in London or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. So space is, is abstract and place is general for the purposes of this conversation. Now, memory is significant. A place can take on a very uh, deep personal significance if it's where something happened that you were part of. So it might be the, the place that you met your first partner or went on your first date. Um, uh, or it might be somewhere that you were beaten up. And uh, because of this, then you have a particular personal connection to a place. Uh, history is also important, and I touched on this last week when I was talking about storytelling. Places get overwritten with the significance of events that have happened within them. So if a famous, famous person is born somewhere, a musician uh, plays a career-defining gig somewhere, if a person is murdered somewhere, if a saint has a vision somewhere, any of these things will overwrite that place with an importance. It will imbue it with importance, and in some cases will make it the site of a pilgrimage. Um, because all of a sudden the place in which it's happened is significant, it's elevated above the mundane, and it's turned into something more. And if the events are unspeakably awful, and of course uh, an example here would be the site of the Nazi death camps, then the place may take on an almost mythological quality, as, as you know, in the case of things like Auschwitz and Belsen, people will talk about how the birds don't sing there. And it doesn't matter whether the birds sing there or not, the point is that we register them as places where the birds should not sing because of the suffering and the death that happened at those places. These are all sort of different ways of thinking about public space. Then. So you've got division of space according to power, you've got familiarity, uh, you've got memory, and you've got history. Now, what Poe is talking about in the quote that I read at the beginning is a kind of a way of distilling all of these factors in making a place um, so that even if we don't know anything about its history or its usage or its purpose or its memory or its inhabitants, it seems to tell us what it is just by the way that it looks and feels. And here, I suppose, we start to encounter you know, ideas of what might be thought of as a haunted house. So the definition I'm proposing of a haunted house is a place that is so saturated with the events that have taken place there that it has obtained a feeling or a sense that is immediately discernible to anybody who visits it, even if they don't know anything about it. They go to a place and it's like, oh my god, something happened here. There's a line in the first Sin City film, the Frank Miller um, adaptation, where a character called Marv goes to this farm and he says, this is a bad place, people have died here. Um, so what he's talking about in that case, I would suggest, is a haunted house, a place that has gained a personality and in, often a kind of a negative personality based on the way that it feels and the way in which you think that it has been used in the past. So, what I, but what I like about the quote in Poe is that he points out that he, the way, what he says is a mere different arrangement of the particulars of the scene or of the details of the picture would be sufficient to modify or perhaps to annihilate its capacity for sorrowful impression. So for Poe, that effect, that feeling, is not actually based on a sense that you know events have happened there. It's more to do with the way in which the place is presented. So for Poe, it's, this, it's a place of dead trees and eye-like windows and so on. So it looks like stuff has happened there. And we register on an aesthetic level something that we then in interpret on a historical level. So we see the way that it looks, but what we think and what we feel is it looks awful, therefore stuff must have gone on here in order to th that it can look this awful and feel this awful. So, in other words, the atmosphere or sense of a haunted house is something that can be created, and it can be completely artificial, but it can still function. And that's where we get into the theatre, because that's exactly the job of theatrical production. Theatre is always connected to a place, uh, even, if it, you know, even if it's a theatre that involves multimedia, it always has to have a place, even if it's just the place for the spectator. Um, 
And so one of the jobs that theatre makers have to do is that they have to take over a place. They have to write their own narratives within and upon that place. And in some cases, it's quite straightforward. You know, if you go to the Traverse Theatre this week, the Traverse, I always say that, the Traverse Theatre, and, you, and it, you know, this week and it's Troy of Antiquity. Next week you go and it's uh, Macbeth's Castle at Dunsinane or it's Widow Twanky's Cottage or whatever. But other times people put shows on in supermarkets or on street corners or in disused warehouses or in somebody's front room. And for the duration of the performance, they have to create the same effect as a haunted house. They have to present you with an, an image of a place that makes you feel that stuff has happened there so that you believe the story that is then being performed. It's not always a spooky atmosphere, necessarily. Um, but, I'm, but I'm not saying that haunting is necessarily spooking. And this, what I'm saying is haunting is something that, uh, through an aesthetic presentation, makes you feel that there is a history. So, but there are other ways in which theatre buildings can be thought of, thought of as haunted houses, which is where Marvin Carlson comes in. Now, Carlson is interested in, in the book I mentioned, uh, The Haunted Stage, in thinking about how previous performances affect present performances. And an example he gives is the way that actors are haunted by their previous roles. So, for example, no matter what he does, David Tennant will probably always carry a ghost of Doctor Who. Um, doesn't, you know, whatever, he, whichever, I mean, he played the villain uh, Kilgrave in the Jessica Jones, the uh, HBO, I think it was HBO, it was on Netflix series, and it, you're looking at it, it's brilliant and amazing, but there's still a glimmer of Doctor Who in him. Um, I saw, I read a review of a recent show called The People vs. O.J. Simpson, in which they said, the reviewer said that the whole effect had been destroyed for them because Ross, uh, sorry, I'm saying David Schwimmer, um, who in the, the, the show plays uh, Robert Kardashian, he just looked like Ross Geller, who's the character that he played in the TV, in Friends, the 90s TV sitcom, and he can't escape this, 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 persona. He's haunted by Ross Geller. Uh, the same thing can happen with buildings. So I can, when I was 22, I was a master's student and I went to the Royal Court Theatre in London for the first time in my life. And it was incredible because for me, it was this place that had hosted all of these really important productions, Saved and Blasted and so on, had been performed there. And I was completely overawed by the sense of what I felt from these previous productions. The fact that the play I saw was crap was, at that point, irrelevant, because I was just so dwarfed by my feeling for, for the previous productions. As time's gone on, I, I've, my feelings towards the Royal Court have changed, and if I see a crap play there, then I think it's a crap play, and I go away annoyed, as I often do. Um, not saying that the Royal Court plays are crap, but just, you know, if I see a bad play, I think I go away feeling annoyed, just to clarify. Um, but the first time I went there, I didn't care. I was happy being among the ghosts. As it were. So the second, right now, the second point about Poe, this idea about a place being a character in and of itself, and having a personality that can somehow be staged, this is going to get me into talking about uh, Zinni's uh, plays this week. But first, it is worth pointing out, I think, that theatre has a long history of talking about place as if it had a personality. Shakespeare is full of this stuff, from Hamlet's diagnosis of there is something rotten in the state of Denmark. Um, and later killing a man by stabbing the walls of the castle when he kills Polonius, he actually attacks the castle itself. To the forests of Burnham Wood, which, uh, you know, soldiers dress up as uh, trees, and then they march against Macbeth in Dunsinane. So the, the whole notion of the, the forest itself takes on this personality of an invader. And it makes sense, because if you think about it, particularly in, in early modern theatre, but I mean, theatre generally doesn't have the resources or often the technology to be able to present you with an authentic representation of a world unless they're doing this you know a fully naturalistic play where they try to show you a, a room in a house and they, they design it to the nth degree but most productions don't tend to do that although naturalism is, is something that's very popular um, and so they rely upon other techniques by which they and indicate that there is a world that they're showing you and one of the easiest and most obvious techniques is to talk about place to talk about place as if it is a character now um, like I said, this gets us into, um, and we're actually on time, which is a bit worrying. Uh, this gets us into thinking about um, 
uh, Zinni's play. Um, before I do that, just one quick word. I mean, it's worth looking up Stephen Burkhoff's Fall of the House of Usher. It is a very strange production, and the production I saw, uh, a very strange play, the production I saw wasn't brilliant. I mean, it was a, a, a student production, but it was still not... Oh, God, I'm doing this again. Not not to say that all student productions are bad. I have seen some, some student productions which are extraordinary and have completely changed the way I think about theatre. In this case, it was not a production that changed the way I thought about theatre. Oof. Um, but I can still remember this person standing up there and saying, someone is coming to me. I can feel it in my walls and thinking, oh God, he's a house. And it, which sounds ridiculous when I say it now, but at the time actually sent shivers down my spine. So we get to uh, the reviews, which is parts two and three of This Restless House, which is Innie Harris's new trilogy based on the Oresteia, directed by Dominic Hill at the Citizens Theatre in Glasgow. It had a three-week run. And I saw the parts two and three last um, week on uh, Saturday, uh, having organised a conference, or having helped to organise a conference on tragedy, which had gone on throughout the day. So we'd had, we started at nine, um, and then we, we had a bunch of academic papers. Uh, then we had some talks from people who work in theatre, then we went and saw part one. Uh, we had some more papers, and then we saw parts two and three, and we finished at 10pm. So by the time you know, I'd finished this, I was uh, <laughs> exhausted and in, uh, slightly drunk, and in, in a, certainly in a kind of case of emotional um, uh, fraughtness, which isn't a word, but it should be. But, safe to say, I came out of it feeling really, really, really affected. Upset, in a lot of ways, but I think that that's part of the point of tragedy. As I mentioned before, I think I, I very much sympathise with Nietzsche and, 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 in some ways, Walter Benjamin, um, who both talk about tragedy as something which, at a, at a fundamental level, should affect you. So you should feel it as a physical um, emotion, as a physical thing if it's working. And it should also be felt on a very personal level. It's not like storytelling where it seeks to create communities of spectators. It seeks to individualise, I think. And I agree with the player Howard Barker this, in this case, because he's written about this a lot. He talks about how the, uh, the tragic spe the spectator of tragedy doesn't care what anybody else is thinking because they're engaging with their most primal emotions and nobody else can touch those, apart from it seems that the tragedy is being played on stage in front of you. And I understand that in some ways this is, makes the whole notion of trying to review tragedy a bit silly because well, what works for me isn't going to work for you because my frames of reference are completely different. I will bear that in mind as I conduct my review. Um, briefly, so the, we said the first play, uh, Agamemnon, is about Agamemnon's return from the Trojan War and eventually being killed by Clytemnestra and observed by his daughter Electra. Part two, uh, which is called um, The Bow Breaks um, in, in Zinni's uh, trilogy, picks up the action a few years later. Electra's grown up, and uh, she actually gets on very well with her mother, Clytemnestra, which is a deviation from uh, the original in which she hates her mother because she saw her mother kill her father. In this case, she recognises, at least on some level, the reasons why her mother had to kill her father. She also recognises the significance of his um, sacrifice of Phigenia and the selfishness of that act and so on. So she's kind of not content exactly... Um, but she's, well, she's not content at all. She's living in the palace with Clytemnestra. The beginning of the play, Clytemnestra is uh, in a coma, which the uh, butcher, who's, who's a, a servant, and Electra both believe to be a haunting. Aegisthus, the guy that comes in at the very end of uh, Agamemnon's return, who is uh, portrayed in this as a very kind of sleazy, slightly Eastern European dictator-inflected character has taken over, or is trying to take over, but he's a fairly inept king, and he's increasingly harsh upon Electra. Now, Electra eventually goes to Clyton, uh, not Clyton, to Agamemnon's grave, and she starts pouring wine, which is a, a libation, onto the grave, in order to stop the ghost from haunting Clytemnestra. 
the ghost of Agamemnon. Um, while she's there, she meets her brother Orestes, who is who's been living wild, who's played brilliantly by Lorne MacDonald as this kind of very pathetic, um, who's uh, plays one of the chorus members in the first part, very kind of uh, ethereal almost figure. And um, they have a reunion. They've not seen each other for ages. Eventually, uh, they hatch this kind of plan that they will. Like, oh, sorry, yeah. The, the other thing is they start. Uh, Clytemnestra wakes up, and the uh, she's she's really troubled. She feels awful. She's got this kind of weight hanging over her. She starts to feel that there's flies all over her body, and it's something that is physically revolting. And she starts to itch. And Electra starts to itch. And Orestes is already itching. And they say, well, this is what Agamemnon was like. He was always itching. So they realise that they're all being haunted by the ghost of Agamemnon. And the reason that they're being haunted is because he wants justice for his murder. He wants, essentially, Clytemnestra to be killed. And so, eventually, that's what happens. Um, in, the, in the original, again, it's Orestes that kills um, Clytemnestra, but in this production, now sorry, I should have said at the beginning spoilers, but you know these, these are the spoilers. Um, in this production, it's Electra who kills Clytemnestra because Orestes uh, isn't capable of doing so, and then that's the end of the uh, the second part. And then the third part, we we sort of start in this very strange afterlife, kind of. And there is and the third part, the, the scenography goes brilliantly mental. There's a forest that plummets from the ceiling. Um, there's flashing lights all the place, music's gone nuts. The music throughout, uh, well I'll talk about the music later and we'll talk about the personification of the house, but uh, Clytemnestra appears as a ghost to Electra who is um, then chased by the demons of hell and uh, ends up in a, in a psychiatric ward being treated by, by nurses and doctors and so on who don't believe that she's being attacked by demons and they, they think that there is a kind of a pharmacological um, solution to her problems. She meets a, well she's, she's being treated, or she has been treated by a, a doctor called Audrey uh, Audrey ends up taking on part of, of Electra's problems. Uh, Orestes, by this point, has already uh, killed himself. He hangs himself in, in between parts two and three. And, um, you, and it all kind of breaks down into this very odd, uh, something almost Artodian thing. I'll talk about Artod in a second. Um, and then at the end, it's, there is a resolution that is very different to the original. And I'll wait, I'll save that for the very end of this review. Now, what I like about this production is the fact, I mean, as I said, it made me cry. It, it, um, it scared me. It was actually probably the second time I can remember being scared in a theatre. And the first time was a play called Ghost Stories, which is uh, written and performed by Andy Nyman. The production I saw wasn't performed by him, but it was um, performed by somebody else. But it's, I'll talk about that as well. Um, it has a very corporeal uh, obsession, this play. So you've got these characters scratching on stage. You've got people chattering their teeth constantly, chorus members chattering their teeth, standing around the outside, or actors who are not performing on stage, standing around the outside, chattering their teeth. It feels visceral. There is a conversation between Orestes and Electra where they talk about they believe that Clytemnestra buried Agamemnon with his penis under his arm so that he couldn't rest. So there's a sense of the desecration of corpses. And, of course, you know, the, the idea of what do you do with a dead body is quite central to Greek tragedy. As I mentioned in the first episode, the whole notion of Antigone mourning for her brother because he can't be buried properly is something that uh, is, is very central. And, it's a, and I think, as again I mentioned before, that this is something that we actually have quite... It's quite common um, in the modern world as to what do we do with bodies of people who've fallen in combat. How do we treat them? Um... I like the. I mean, the ghosts. The, the the ghosts were very peculiar. The ghost of Agamemnon, um, who, and I've done this again. I knew I was going to do this, but I was going to try not to do this. Uh, George Anton, who played um, Agamemnon, spent most of the parts two and three just sort of hanging around the stage and staring at people, and they couldn't see him. 
Um, now, this is, as I said, I'll do a show on ghosts in the future, but this is something that is a preoccupation of theatre, the idea of, of basically all the characters you see on stage are ghosts anyway, because they only, in, they, they kind of, they exist for the time in which they're inhabited by their actors, and then they disappear. And, of course, certain ghosts, certain characters have been played over and over and over throughout history, and so become ghosts. But also, if you think back to Hamlet, the first thing that you see on stage is a ghost appearing, or is it? There is a preoccupation with the spirit world and with um, fandoms and haunting that kind of goes through theatre. And this is something that Harris seems to be trying to pick up on in this production. I'm not sure exactly to what purpose she was picking up on it. Um, it didn't... the ghosts... Uh, the ghosts often seemed to serve more of an aesthetic rather than any other kind of function. They were there for something to be looked at. And we, we knew that there was a haunting, but we weren't sure exactly why the ghosts were on stage. Um... I also uh, I liked the, the notion of, of the stories and curses spreading like plague. I mean, there's this kind of sense of inevitability in tragedy. There's often one of the things that's problematic about tragedy, particularly. I mentioned the Americans. The Americans in the 20th century were writing tragedies, like Arthur Miller was writing tragedies, and so on. Eugene O'Neill and um, what was problematic for them about tragedies is that the idea of fate, the idea that you're not in control of your destiny, the idea that you don't have choice, that everything has been written for you, which is kind of ish the way that it works in Greek tragedy, but not exactly, because there are choices in Greek tragedy, and humans make choices. It's simply that the gods can often see what those choices are going to be, which is not quite the same thing as predestination. But of course, for the American 20th century, they didn't like the idea of, of predestination or, or any kind of hint of predestination, because that's not the principle upon which America is founded. Um, the United States of America has been founded, so they found ways around it. Now, here, what we have is a sense that there is predestination, that, there, that but the predestination is the story itself, that the story of the doomed family, of the, the, the House of Atreus, is what is driving the tragedy that we see in front of us. And, the, and it's a persuasive argument, because, of course, these, as I mentioned before, these tragedies have existed for two and a half thousand years, and the stories keep being retold, and every time they get retold, the family is damned anew. Um, I liked, I, I really, the, the, the thing that really got me was, was the idea of the house itself as a character. Now the house, um, the people who were not acting at the time, most of the time they didn't go off stage, they stood around the walls, and they had microphones and they had musical instruments, and they would often breathe heavily into, them, into these uh, microphones, and they would often play the musical instruments, and there was this kind of, in the second play in particular, was this sort of dark and sexy and sultry music that was being played with very strong bass lines, people singing semi-away from this restless house. Um, and at that point, I, an idea that had started to kind of get in my head at the beginning, of, in part one, really took to the fore, which is that the house itself is a character, and that the house itself wants to hurt the people inside it. The first glimmer of this I got was in part one, where Clytemnestra is trying to lie to Agamemnon, and to pretend that she's forgiven him, so that she can get him into the bath and stab him. And every time she tells a really particularly strong lie, the, uh, if the Iphigenia character, the Iphigenia ghost, would make a really sharp horrible grating noise on piano strings and Clytemnestra would then spasm. So the music was actually having a physical effect upon the characters. Uh, the, 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 uh, later on in the production, or possibly early in the production, Agamemnon punched the piano strings in a, a really beautiful moment of stage choreography. I'm not quite sure how he did it without cutting his fingers to pieces, which is presumably part of the point. But the as, as we moved into part three, that idea of the house having a character really took off because when the doctors were not on stage, people would emerge from the walls and they would become these demonic figures that would then accost and attack 
Electra, the music became very discordant, often it's sometimes quite punky, and that was actually one of the problems I have with the production, is that I think that punk is quite a difficult genre of music to pull off, unless you are a punk band. And in this case, they were not a punk band, and they were not, it was not a punk venue, so the, the kind of the punk aesthetic to me didn't quite click, although I, I respected its intentions. Um, I mentioned the, the chattering teeth, and I think, I mean, some of the, uh, in the second, sorry, in the third part, we've got this notion of a person who is insane, or not insane, actually, a person who is not insane at all, is completely sane, but who's believed to be insane by the doctors, and in fact, the doctor keeps saying to her, I don't think there's anything, uh, I don't think that you are, that your problems can be categorised by medical science because you don't exhibit any of the symptoms we would expect to be exhibited. Now, that, for me, is something that is very, very common, but not in theatre so much as in film and in television, and the first... Uh, you know, I, I, there is a, a production called the Marat Saad, which is a 1960s production that I will probably talk about at some point in the future, in which the uh, the lunatics take over the asylum. But the idea of a of uh, a person who is seeing ghosts, but who the doctors don't believe, and who turns out to be right, is a kind of standard conceit of a horror film. And in many ways, I felt that this production was actually more indebted to horror cinema than it was to Greek tragedy. Now I'm going to move on to the complete spoiler bit now. So this is where um, you might want to listen away if you, if you don't want to you know, get everything spoiled for you. But the ending of the play, the ending of the production, in which ordinarily what would happen is Orestes would be pardoned and Greek society would uh, be founded. In this play what happens is they have a sort of strange conversation in which they try to cast a vote as to whether or not Electra will be damned for killing Clytemnestra. But Iphigenia, the ghost who has the casting vote, refuses to vote. And the reason she refuses to vote is she says um, that she actually... The, the whole thing is that, you know, that uh, it's a curse that one person kills another, so that person then seeks revenge, so then that person kills somebody else. So if Iphigenia gets killed by Agamemnon, so she seeks revenge from Clytemnestra, Clytemnestra kills Agamemnon, then Agamemnon seeks revenge from Electra and Orestes, so then Electra kills Clytemnestra, so then Clytemnestra seeks revenge for, on Electra. And the whole cycle continues. And actually, Iphigenia says, well, no, I'm, I'm a kid. I didn't seek revenge on anybody. Anything that you were doing, in fact, the line that she says is, I did nothing. If you thought I did, it was because you wanted to think that I'm a little... You wanted to think that. I'm a little girl. I, uh, I wanted to play with my dolls. I wanted to run on the sand. I was never a spirit of anything. So, that you know, people believed that there was a curse, and so, they acted, so the curse um, was created. Um, it's a bold move, and uh, I think it will. it's designed to be controversial because she, Zinni Harris is taking on the, the canon here, essentially, and trying to change it around. She's already changed it around by saying by changing the perspective from Orestes onto Electra and, and making the women characters much more important than the male characters, which is not the way they are in the original. And that I respect completely. In terms of the ending, the plays... I've mentioned that tragedy lasts so long, and I think one of the reasons it lasts so long is that the plays are national allegories. And national allegory is a term I'll explain very quickly, I'll try and explain, uh, it was something that Frederick Jameson, an American critic, came up with to describe third world literature. So I don't like the use he puts it to, but what he says is that there are some stories that are also, that they're, you know, stories of um, maybe mundane occurrences, maybe, you know, not particularly important, but that they are also stories of the birth of the nation, or of the nation. And I think that's one of the reasons why the Greek tragedies lasted so long, is because they are stories fundamentally of the formation of the Greek nation, and nations are born in violence, and suffering, and bloodshed, and 
they endure if people can overcome the uh, trauma of the formation of the nation and to create a national identity in and of themselves. I think something that's really important for the British, although we stole it from the Welsh and the French actually, is King Arthur, which is a kind of a story, which is a story that kind of goes back to the source of how do we create a, a unified kingdom. Um, and that's a story that's peppered with death and betrayal and intrigue and so on. Now, this is a story, the, the Oresteia is a story of the formation of the Greek nation. And it's about trying to come to terms with the suffering that has been endured and to say at the end of this trilogy that actually it's all invented, that it's all in the mind of the people who've died and so on. I'm not sure how I feel about that. Like I said, I think it's a bold move. I think it's a controversial move. But I think that's not necessarily a bad thing at all. But I think that there are, I have some problems with what the play seems to be saying about the significance of the story itself. Now, I'm sure that people would disagree with me, and I'm sure that you know I've missed some things and so on, but that's my principal concern with this production, or this play, this, this trilogy of plays. Having said that, this was um, a very significant production. I think it did make me um, it made me cry, as I mentioned, it made me scared and so on, and it did make, I left feeling, left feeling quite shaken. Um, so, I think actually we've got to yeah we've got to thirty two minutes so I'm going to stop there. Um, I hope this made sense and thank you for bearing with me. I shall leave you with Polly's song. Actually, I lie. Before I do, there's some housekeeping. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this, please share it around, like it, invite people, do whatever you think is appropriate. We're on Facebook, SoundCloud, and iTunes, and I'm on Twitter as at Sam Haddo. If you do like this kind of podcast, check out State of the Theory, a weekly show that uses critical theory to explore contemporary events. They're on Facebook and SoundCloud and iTunes as well, uh, and Twitter. Um, the song is One More Broke Poet, written and performed by Polly Edwards, whose website is www.brokepoet.com. And thanks also to Kuldeep Panasar for very kindly agreeing to produce this podcast. Now I leave you with Polly's song. So fight on your back and go dream of the seas Find out you're not quite that easy to please Be slave to the tracks, be king for a day Do you realize kings do have a price they can